hello, hello. Welcome to Living Out Loud, and it's New Year's Eve. I can't believe it, but I'm super excited to be here with my co-host for today's show, the always busy, someone who's busier than me, <laughs> Tracy Bame. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to Living Out Loud. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I can't believe that it is December 31st right here in front of us. It's happening. The end of the year. How, how, did it go fast for you as well? Boy, it was actually a wonderful year that felt like the middle of it slowed down just enough. And why is that, Tracy? I wonder why. I left a position that was very high stress, and I decided the summer was going to be for writing and learning again to play tennis and actually taking swimming lessons for the first time in my life. Oh, did you take swimming lessons? I did, well, from my sister, but it was still a start because I felt like I wanted to do kayaking and I didn't know how to swim, and that was probably pretty dangerous. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, that's wonderful. So you made this transition um, in, was it March? In March. In March. And um, so I'm sure the year did feel like it slowed down quite a bit for you because you also did some travel. Right. So I left the Chicago Reader and then immediately went on a three-week road trip with my sister and my brother who has lived in England most of the last 35 years. So my sister, brother, and I hadn't spent much time together in 40 years wow. and had three weeks on the road and had just the most fabulous sibling revelry trip you could ever want through the mountains, through uh, we avoided every uh, snowstorm and every rainstorm and tornado you could and had the most perfect trip to really break free my brain from the past four and a half years at the reader during a pretty tumultuous time. So it felt like a really good um, transition into the, the writing that I really want to get back to. That is incredible. Um, just tell us briefly, where, where are some of the places you went to during the, the road trip? So we drove south through um, St. Louis, and then every day my brother would look on the map and find a tourist-type thing to do because we were kind of pre-tourist season. Uh -huh. So we did a little bit of Route 66 museums. Nice. We did the Meteor Crater, crater the Cadillac Ranch, um, Petrified Forest, all these things I had never done before. And then we ended up in uh, where my nephew lives, my sister's kid, lives in um, Rancho Cucamonga, California. Oh, say, say that three times very fast. Okay. All right. I'm not going to ask you to say that again. Um, well, that sounds like a wonderful way to make that transition, right, to writing. And for just a few folks, maybe you've been living under a rock who don't know uh, about Tracy's background as a journalist. Uh, tell folks just a little bit about how you, you started as a journalist and, and got to, um, to the reader. So in 1984, I started at Chuck Renslow's Gay Life newspaper. So I went from graduating from college as an openly gay journalist. I knew I didn't really have a path in the mainstream. My parents were both in the mainstream, and they told me <laughs> that it probably wouldn't work out being openly gay in 1984. So I, I then, in 1985, co-founded Windy City Times, did a bunch of other gay papers. And in 2018, the Chicago Reader was two days from shutdown. The union contacted me. Then I reached out to Edwin Eisendrath. Um, and Who, by the way, has a program on this station. <laughs> exactly. So he was publisher of the Chicago Sun-Times, which had its own big hurdle to survival. So they, the board had voted to shut the reader. And so through a few days of negotiations, um, there were two people, Elsie Higginbottom and Len Goodman, who had said they would fund it but didn't have a publisher. So that's what I was able to do. Um, and uh, it was really like a three-day hiring process. And uh, I came in, it was losing a million a year. Um, I convinced them to start the path of turning nonprofit and then COVID hit. And we had to just tap dance for dollars for a couple years to survive. And then finally in the middle of last year, uh, 2022, the full nonprofit happened. And, um, and then I was able to say, you know, let's pass this off to a new person. That, and that's what you did. And uh, Morton Group helped with that transition uh, to Solomon, um, who's running the paper now. And I hear things are, are going well. It's it's hard to make a transition of any kind. Right. And so I think it was really thoughtfully done. And um, 
you know, you hung in there until the, the person was in place, which I know everyone appreciated. Um, so now you have all this time um, <laughs> to do so many things. What are you up to? So I've probably committed to too many projects because that's my modus operandi, but um, I had turned 60 uh, a year ago, and I really wanted to get back into writing. So I'm parallel working on three book projects. One is two of them are uh, paid projects, and one is my own memoir of 40 Years in the Gay Press. And then I'm also going to go back to my work on tiny homes, which I had to kind of give up when I started to the reader. So we're going to do a new tiny home summit in June at UIC with all the migrant crisis and, and housing. Perfect it's, timing. Yeah, perfect timing to bring back the, the dignity of small footprint housing, not shacks, but full um, homes, small bungalows, basically, mm -hmm. that we need uh, in the housing area. And also working on the journalism ecosystem. So I have several projects working on the gay press ecosystem nationally and then also really continuing to push for more funding for journalism. Wow. And, and, and talk about the group that you started that really helps with the funding. Right. So Chicago Independent Media Alliance had started under the Chicago Reader um, and it brought together more than 80 of the outlets locally to advocate for better government equity in advertising and also for a pooled fund for journalism. That pooled fund for journalism that we pushed MacArthur Foundation and the Trust and others to do has been announced. It's called Press Forward Locally. And also there's a Press Forward Nationally now that's going to put a half a billion dollars into journalism nationally. The Knight Foundation in Miami and uh, MacArthur putting in the bulk of it, but dozens and dozens of other foundations around the country put into it. Just yesterday, MacArthur announced $48 million in, in funding for journalism, uh, most of that in national organizations and regional ones, and $38 million, I believe, is going to the pooled fund nationally. So really hundreds of millions of new dollars into journalism. Chicago will see probably 10 to $25 million mm -hmm. more by the time the five-year plan is up. So that will go into innovative systems change as well as actual funding of journalists. And let's talk a little bit about some of the things you hope can be done with that money when you talk about systems change. Right. I, I do worry that uh, philanthropy could be another single point failure for media if the systems aren't changed as well. So what does that mean to me? So, for example, an, one area that uh, SEMA worked in is equity and government advertising. New York City has a great model that the uh, CUNY City University of New York worked on where 50 percent of government ad dollar spends need to go to community and ethnic media. They've shifted millions of dollars. There's billions of dollars spent nationally in government spends alone. If you look uh, at then the commercial side of advertising, one of the things I want to study with uh, Tracy Powell from the Pivot Fund out of Atlanta is the creation of an ad rep firm that would be like a B Corp nationally uh, that okay. would try to start to shift billions of dollars mm -hmm. in commercial advertising, pharmaceutical, autos, right. et cetera, mm -hmm. back into community and local media. We have to meet them halfway. There has to be better systems to, to work with local media, but it used to be done 30 years ago before the internet. So I want, I think we need to look at system, system change in the ad world. Um, otherwise there's not a long-term fix here. Philanthropy will go away and a lot of the projects they fund will go away too. Right. And so we don't want this to be a flash in the pan, so to speak. Right. We want to make sure that um, all of these uh, entities, um, various groups can continue to be to be supported. What do you think about some of the newer um, publications that are on the scene? Not necessarily publications, but a group like Black Club Chicago. I think that the new kinds of media happening, especially in Chicago, but also nationally, like the Tribe, Block Club Chicago, City Bureau, Cicero Independiente, Harvey World, Harold, there are so many amazing young journalists doing their own thing. It's what I had to do in co-founding Windy City Times, what you have done in radio and other places. That stuff is, is very exciting, right? What I want to make sure is we create structures that can support those kinds of things. And some are very successful. I consider Block Club and the Tribe very successful mm -hmm. models. Mm -hmm. But there's some really other great ones, I think, that will come up if we can create some systems around them. Okay. And when you were working, you know, publishing and editing every day, tell us a couple of things that really, as you reflected, and I'm sure you've had time to, <laughs> um, um, and or been asked about it, what, what 
really is, is a highlight or highlights that you would say, this is why I continue to do this work. This is why I've done it for 40 years. Well, you know, a few years ago when I was about kind of burning out on the gay community, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. especially after the gay games in 2006, yes. which took, you know, six years of my volunteer life, mm-hmm. um, I went back and I realized, who do I do this for? Oh, I, I do it for the individual people, not the like community writ large. That's too vague and amorphous, and there's many bad people in it, but for the good people in it, right? So I did this thing called uh, ChicagoGayHistory.org, where I did about 200 oral histories on video of people, 20% of whom have passed away, people like Mary York, right? And it was the only oral history some of these people had ever done. And it really brought me back to realizing who inspires me. And at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, there's a few youth I still work with from the Youth Homeless Summit we did in uh, 2014 that I continue to work with. Um, One of them, his name is Breezy. And Breezy has taught me so much about the systems around poverty and homelessness that need changing. And it's a very mutually beneficial relationship, right? I can, you know, help her if there's housing assistance or transit assistance or things like that. But then she keeps me really informed about the life that, that the challenge that she faces. So it's the individual people that I can work with and help that then inspire me to try to fight for the bigger change that may seem impossible at times. But a pooled fund for journalism was something people poo-pooed. But believe me, they didn't even want to sign the statement I created uh, asking our members to sign. Only uh, 70% of them signed the statement because they were afraid of offending the funders. And I get it, right? You're afraid of biting the hand that might feed you um, or that currently feeds you. And I said, no, 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 the the mid-level funders need us to agitate. This is what Obama said. I want you out there protesting because then when I meet with the people, it's easier for me to get my my mission across, right? It's easier to get don't ask, don't tell, shut down if you on the outside are pushing me. It's so funny to hear you say that because I literally had to say that to folks when I worked for Daily. When I went to work for Daily, I heard, oh, you're going to work for the man. Oh, my God, what's happened? (laughs) You know, and I said, no, again, you want me with my politics on the inside. So we you can be on the outside and we can push toward the middle. There were so many things. And that's that's a sitcom waiting to be written. I'm telling you. Okay, And I still have my call logs (laughs) because there's so many things that happen behind the scenes that people have no idea about and they don't need to know. However, it is important to keep in mind that um, I, I'll just remember this, too, from uh, watching the um, the uh, goodness, leaving the shadows behind the film that I made where Danny Davis is saying things don't just happen. You have to make them happen. And I think we are not uh, sometimes as strategic as we can be in terms of understanding that you need somebody on the inside mm-hmm. and we need somebody on the outside. And then we're going to push and we're going to make things happen. And that happened in ways that people aren't even aware of. Right, right. And I love being that combination where I've been able to see both sides of that. I worked on the Chicago Youth Storage Initiative, which came out of the Youth Summit, and I worked. I was the only non-funder on the panel. And I learned so much about what they listen to and how they make decisions. Yes, well, you know, I've been a funder, um, and... Uh, funders listen to funders, <laughs> and they and they are fun, generally uh, first adverse, right? Well, who else is doing it? You know, that's that'll be the question. And and in fact, you know, we would certainly understand when I was on the other side of that. We need to say that there are a number of funders who are interested in this, and et cetera. You know, um, because yeah, they're they're um, really risk adverse, yeah. right? In many ways. Now that's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly changed when COVID uh, hit, and people said, oh, well, what are we going to do? We've got to get folks money quickly. And you know what? They, they could do that. They did it, right? So rapid response is ac- absolutely something that can be done. And all of the paperwork and uh, time that people have spent around their, um, you know, working on grants, grants, are the same, essentially the same grant submitted every year, right? Multi, multi-year funding is possible, mm-hmm. right? Rapid response is possible. And so there was a lot of learning um, during COVID in particular, and I'm just hoping that it doesn't fade away. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like we created an emergency pooled fund uh, out of that as well at SEMA. We did in three weeks. We created a joint fundraiser that raised one hundred sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, that's incredible. So, there, so again, um, you know, those of us who fundraise, like you and I, know that there is a lot of money out there, and you have to ask for it. Mm-hmm. That is the number one rule of fundraising, y'all. You've got to ask for the money. Absolutely. So we're, well, we're going to continue talking about this, but we're also going to take a look at, you know, again, end of the year is upon us, and we are going to be joined by the editor-in-chief, Salem Kolo Julin, uh, in just a little bit. And we're going to take a look back at 2023 because it has been quite the year. And uh, we've got a lot to look forward to in 24, but we're going to concentrate on 23. Uh, we're going to be back in just a moment. You're listening to Living Out Loud. It's Mary Morton with Living Out Loud. And here's a little bit about Morton Group, the sponsor of my show. Morton Group is a national consulting firm working with nonprofits, foundations, for-profits, and government entities. Our work helps organizations expand and deepen their impact by working on equity initiatives and executive placements, among other areas of focus. Reach out to us at info at mortongroup.com with any questions. And don't forget to listen in on Sundays at 1 p.m. on WCPT 820 a.m. And we are back. You're listening to Living Out Loud on WCPT 820 AM. Happy New Year's Eve. I can't believe that it's the last day of the year. I can't either. I am looking forward to a new year, though. Yeah, it's flown by. Okay, and so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the major headlines and and stories that caught our interest uh, in 2023. And I'm excited to welcome to Living Out Loud um, the editor-in-chief at the Chicago Reader, uh, I want to welcome Salem Colo Julen. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. How are you? I can't believe it's the end of the year already. I can't believe it either. And I say good morning when actually, of course, it's it's afternoon. But I'm, you know, I'm just all the all the time is getting very mixed up for me here. And um, yeah, you know, Salem, we just want to take a look back at the year with Tracy here and myself. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get to the reader? 
Sure. So uh, I'm born and raised in Chicago, um, and I had uh, been working as a writer alongside a lot of other things. I worked in food service for a long time. Um, I worked in uh, emergency communications for a brief stint um, and living in Philadelphia. Um, so like a, like a lot of other writers, I've had many different lives. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them years ago was working um, for your distinguished guest, Tracy Bain. Um, I, I won't say how many years ago, um, but it was, it was some time. And that's where I kind of uh, ignited my, my love of journalism, honestly, um, being a paper made. And back in those days, we were doing everything, um, you know, cut and paste, and we actually had to physically bring things to a printer and, and all of that. So getting, getting to see a newspaper made from the ground up, um, you know, uh, was, was really the, the thrill of my life at that point. And, and now years later, uh, after freelancing and doing a bunch of other things, I've, I've been working for the reader for uh, almost five years now. Um, yeah. And now I'm the editor in chief, which is um, just another thrill. Yes, absolutely. And just tell <laughs> folks um, who may not really understand some of the, um, you know, behind the scenes work. What what do you do uh, as the editor in chief at the Chicago Reader? So, editor jobs in in publications are kind of a mix of a bunch of different things. You end up managing people and um, and all of their expectations and needs, um, but you also kind of command the vision um, uh, for for everyone about what the paper is looking towards in terms of topics that we want to cover throughout the year. Um, but also kind of like setting the tone um, for this is the way that we should be reporting on these things um, and um, helping our our other section editors and writers kind of rediscover what's important. And for the Chicago Reader, it's all about Chicago. It's all about uh, what it means to really um, be a citizen in the city um, and all the good and bad that's involved in that. So it's a, it's a big undertaking, but we manage to do it every two weeks. Wonderful. And we are very, very happy that it that it continues to happen every two weeks. So thank you for Thanks. all of your work. Um, well, let's thank get into you. it. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Let's talk about 2023. And I know we're going to talk about, you know, different headlines and stories that we, we certainly want to lift up. And, and, and in our second break, um, when we come back, we'll also make sure that we are we're talking about things that are happy and that are positive as well, um, because some <laughs> of the things have not been great. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But do we want to uh, mm. start with um, Mayor Johnson's administration and the first eight months or so? Should we start there? Sure. Uh, yes, there is so much to get into. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that, I think we could start with something that unfortunately happened recently, not to start on a downer, but this has been a, an incredible ride to just kind of witness what the administration has been doing in response to um, the uh, issue around the migrants this year. Yeah. Um, so, so many ups and downs. And I would love to hear what you both think uh, about um, about the situation in general. But just this week, um, a, a fellow publication of ours here in Chicago, Borderless, um, broke that unfortunately there was a, 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 a death Yes. Of, a, of a child yes. uh, who had been staying at one of the uh, migrant facilities uh, down in, in, in Pilsen um, on Halstead Street. And um, it, it, 
It's an incredible story, and it sounds like Borderless has also reported on, uh, um, you know, allegedly there's a lack of, of uh, immediate health care available to the people living in that facility. Right. Um, it, it, it's a lot, and, um, and I, I'm, I'm not quite sure if the administration is meeting the mark in responding um, to what's going on um, in this facility that they have set up. It, that, that was a very sad story. Um, and mm-hmm. I think this, to your point, just occurred a few days ago. And um, I, I want to say, I think I saw a clip of maybe a relative of the child's, but it, it's just a very sad thing to happen at any time. Uh, but with mm-hmm. everything going on, it feels like they're really just being, uh, it's, everything's been compounded, if you will. Yeah, I think the subcontracting out to these agencies, the accountability is lost because mm-hmm. we're not doing the direct services. We're not using, I think, proven local leaders in handling this. Um, too mm-hmm. late, the churches were allowed to get involved exactly. in terms of housing people. There are thousands and thousands of churches and other spaces available. There was no reason to ever waste time and energy on a tent-based solution. Um, that was never going to work in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've wasted millions of dollars in many months. I know that just like Lightfoot, uh, Johnson has inherited an incredible a cluster of yes. problems. Cluster um, blank. But That's no, right. But but don't put the blame on. I mean, it, it, obviously we can blame Texas for everything, but that the the actual situation is here at hand, and we have to deal with it and not try to blame others. We have the capacity in Chicago to solve housing issues and these kind of issues. This is an amount of people that can be absorbed into our system if we do it properly. It was done for Ukrainians. It's been done for generations of immigrants. Um, and so I'm, I'm rather disappointed in some of the decisions that have been made by the Johnson administration. I, I am very hopeful for um, there to be change, but they need better advice, better contracts um, and and less excuses. Yeah, it's hard, I think, to come into an administration um, and inherit something like this. And particularly if it was not already set up with a particular frame. Right. And so the previous administration um, didn't necessarily have a. Um, uh, a plan. It, it didn't, you know, didn't appear to be the case. And, and again, we understand that Chicago didn't ask for this yet. We are. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we are a sanctuary city and we do want to support folks who are uh, who who need to come to this country. Uh, but we, we have to have a plan. Right. Because we don't want them to come in and in some cases have it as bad as it was, you know, uh, from wherever they, they are they're coming from. And so getting a plan that works is going to be key because, uh, and we're, we can talk about this separately, but you know we have the DNC coming in next year, right? And so we we can, mm-hmm. we, we can we can talk about that a little bit later. But I just think that this situation it needs to be solved, period, because it's the right thing to do. But also, when we think about the Democratic National Convention being in Chicago next year, we we can't we we, we just can't be having these conversations during that time. Right, and we have a brutal winter coming up. Um, we're going to only get tens of thousands of more uh, migrants coming here, so. A plan that involves a public-private solution. Um, we, it, it's just the, the humane thing to do, the right thing to do, both uh, uh, morally and politically. Absolutely. So, what other, um, what other pieces of work in the Johnson administration would you want to lift up, Salem? Well, I think that um, you know we, as a reader, we cover so much culture, and so we're kind of always interested in what his. Um, Department of Cultural Affairs is up to you, and, you know, they've, they've really kind of um, jumped in there with making sure that um, things like our World Music Festival still was intact. Um, you know, we're not, we're seeing more of a reinvestment in the arts from this administration, which I think is great. I think that's, you know, the way to kind of set the tone for the kind of city that you want to live in, and we, and we all know the appreciation 
appreciation there, but um, I what what kind of bothers me, and this is kind of linked back to what's going with the on with the migrant situation, is that um, you know we we all know that um, there are people that are in those departments that have been working throughout several administrations, and it feels like. It feels like Johnson's administration is sometimes leaning back on the work of people who have already been doing the work for several years, regardless of who's in power. I'm just wondering, it, 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 it kind of begs the question for me, and what, what we've seen going on with the migrant situation begs the question for me, is like, who exactly is giving the advice here, and um, are his people reaching out to anyone else who has any experience here? Because I think we're starting to see this dangerous situation where, you know, you have a new administration who's trying to prove themselves and it feels like they're just making it up as they go along to some extent where there's this opportunity here with, with a lot of people who have been through, you know, um, different, uh, different situations that could be available to you to at least weigh in, you know, at least give you some advice. And, if this is what they're doing with this emergency situation, it just makes me wonder, you know, well, what's going on with our current unhoused people in the city? You know, mm-hmm. um, what are the conditions at all of the city-run facilities? You know, we, we've seen that um, our response to just having warming centers isn't, isn't always as adequate as we'd want it to be. You know, they're not open 24 hours. Um, there's, there's, there's sometimes some issues there. So, um, yeah, it, it just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm interested to keep an eye on it, but I hope that it improves, and I hope that these these terrible situations are, are just going to be kind of like early early uh, lessons for mm-hmm. this administration to kind of mm-hmm. move on. Yeah. Well, um, there, ha- as I recall, there have been some um, advances made around workers' rights, right? And that mm-hmm. certainly has been, uh, I think, a major push forward in terms of just making sure that paid leave is happening. Um, Of course, we had some changes at the state level around that as well. But certainly the um, minimum wage and and workers' rights overall, that seems to have been a focus of the administration as well. Yeah, and he's going to be having a housing czar, which will be the first homeless czar, which will be the first time that'll happen. So I think there are definitely good Mm -hmm. signs. I think part of this migrant crisis, it's interesting because some of the private agencies are also suffering their own problems. And the the collapse of Heartland Housing is really actually Mm -hmm. possibly one of the keys as to why there haven't been good solutions. Um, If you think about how many people they have been engaged with, they would have been the perfect agency agency to step up here, as well as thresholds and Mm -hmm. some others that do an excellent job. So I'm I'm not sure why these outside of Chicago agencies um, were commissioned, but maybe it's because our our internal agencies like Heartland weren't able to uh, staff up, right? Right. Because they were in a staff download. Exactly. And that has been the case. That is the case. Um, You know, we work with a number of of, uh, nonprofits at Morton Group and and folks still are looking for staff. Absolutely. And so I think that I'd be surprised if that weren't part of it, at least mm-hmm. part of it, right? That just finding folks uh, to do this work. And, and I don't know about you all, but I'm always wondering, what are people doing? Where did all these folks go who left their jobs? Because I would like to go there, too. I don't, I, I don't know what happened. Yeah. You know, people just have not come back. And, you know, we do executive searches. So we're we're working with folks in a, a senior and executive level. And people have lots of opportunities. Right. They have lots of opportunities, mm. and, and that comes up in, in every search. So, so again, I think staffing across every industry, certainly you know, in Chicago, remains a major problem, major problem. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the legislation that we've seen across the country. You know, we're very fortunate to live in Illinois, um, but the anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ uh, legislation has been introduced. Over 500 pieces of legislation have been introduced across this country, and I think somewhere in... 
the low 20s. Some of that has actually passed. Um, what do we think about that, uh, you know, in terms of how it rolled out this year and, and also what what work has to be done to push it back in 24? Tracy, why don't you start? Well, this is probably one of the most cynical af- efforts I've ever seen in this country to utilize um, the, the situation of a social issue to turn out red meat voters, right, right-wing right red meat voters. As soon as Dodd came down where abortion rights were trampled on this country, there was already a playbook in place to replace that with trans issues. They made this up. This They made this up out of whole cloth. There was not this national push from a grassroots level. This was astroturf. And so it's so cynical and yet so personal. The individual people whose lives have been uprooted in, in Florida and in Texas, mm, families right. that are terrified of going to jail for caring for their kids, they're moving, people are transferring jobs. It's, it's an incredible, um, yeah, the cynicism, the hypocrisy, so many of these people all don't give a crap about trans rights, and they definitely don't give a crap about women's sports at all. They and don't, they don't give a crap really about drag performers. But right. why not, right. you know, alienate them? Yeah. yeah. So I'm really, it's horrible. I feel so much sympathy and empathy for the people who are doing this, the families that are supportive, as well as the trans and non-binary people going through this. Absolutely. And Salem, what's your perspective on this? Uh, I think this is this is um, dangerous, but also sadly, you know, we are just seeing kind of this this um, uh, swirl of of retro cultures coming back to us from you know the 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 moment in the seventies and into the early eighties when it was okay to be um, treating treating LGBTQ plus people like this. I mean, and and it's a cycle, you know. This this kind of happens. I mean, we 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 saw this coming. Um, even before 2016, um, you know, a lot of these groups were, were basically just getting younger and more uh, adept at technology um, and able to push their message in ways that um, some of our larger groups on, on the progressive side um, haven't been able to. And so, you know, uh, uh, you, you can't discount stuff like TikTok um, to get the message out. Um, and you can't discount also just this moment in time that we have about how people are getting their information. You know, um, I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, it's, it's fortunate for me that I'm, I'm friendly with a lot of uh, parents of friends that I had growing up, right? So I, I happen to know a lot of people who are 80 and over, and I, and I find that great. But every once in a while, I'll get a video from one of them in my email. Did you see this? Can you believe this is happening? And it's completely false information. And I have to tell somebody, like, yeah, you should look to see who's posting that before you send it to all of your friends, you know. And and so groups like Moms for Liberty and all of these other groups are kind of riding that wave of disinformation um, to, to, to tell people what the message is, their message about what a trans person is. And, um, and it, yeah, it's just an unfortunate time um, for, for this. Well, we're going to continue with our conversation. We're going to talk about labor unions, and uh, we're going to talk about some good news that is coming out of the uh, Northwestern's mm-hmm. Prison Education Project. But first, we're going to take a short break. So hang on, Salem. We're going to be back in just a moment. You're listening to Living Out Loud, and we're back in a moment.
And you are listening to Living Out Loud. Hard to believe December 31st is here. And we are talking with Salem Kolo-Julin, who is the editor-in-chief at uh, the Chicago Reader. And we're talking with Tracy Bame, who is the former uh, publisher for the Chicago Reader. And just taking a look back at 2023 as we get ready to just run right into 24. Uh, it's right around the corner. Uh, but Salem, let's, let's continue and talk a little bit about... Um, Labor unions, lots of labor unions, uh, you know, lots of strikes this year. What, what do you make of that? I, I think it was another transformative year for labor uh, this year. We started to see the inklings of that last year with uh, especially some national organizing around um, uh, food service wage level jobs like Starbucks, you know, um, lots of different um, uh, Starbucks uh, communities around the country organizing. And we had that a little bit here in Chicago as well. But this year, I think that national story of the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild being on strike really struck home, hit home for a lot of people who may not be as familiar with labor and uh, today's version of the labor unions. Uh, here in Chicago, we've, we've continually over the last uh, several years uh, seen a lot of organizing at um, at our various colleges and uh, just um, this month um, it looks like uh, the uh, adjunct faculty at Columbia College who had been on strike um, for a significant portion of this last uh, quarter um, at that college uh, it looks like that they've come to the table and uh, come to some some agreements so um, so some a real push forward I think for for unions both local and national and a greater understanding um, for a lot of people who maybe aren't in unions about uh, what these people are fighting for. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I was when I was at the Chicago Reader, it was the first time I supervised a union. Right? Oh, the, okay. The, the Reader mm-hmm. had unionized before yeah. I took over. Um, and we had a very cordial relationship. And um, But I, what I also have witnessed, even in the gay community locally, there's obviously the Berlin strike that oh, yes. ended up, the owners mm-hmm. closed it, and yes. the Howard Brown strike is, uh, not strike, but it, the union negotiations are ongoing. So it's it's hard because... Um, the the whole country is in this capitalist late stage capitalism really, where the the large s you know the one percent that controls fifty percent right of the money in this country, and we're all fighting each other for beans, and um, so part of the problem is again the larger systems are so inequitable the ratio of CEO pay to uh, the the lowest paid paid workers is something that hasn't been budging um, at all. It's only gotten worse. So I'm I'm grateful to see these large unions, especially the head of the auto union. Man, oh man, is he mm-hmm. something special. I think he should run for president. <laughs> he is no, take no prisoners guy that really, um, I, I was very impressed. That to I, me I was, was the too. best one. Yeah, he was like, we we understand what needs to be done. We're going to do it. We're not backing down. We are not backing mm-hmm. down. Uh, when I love it when uh, any group comes back, any employer comes back, um, and they say, well, this is the best offer and our final offer. They said the same thing in SAG-AFTRA, right? No, it's not. No, mm-hmm. it wasn't. Um, you have to continue to work with folks until you can reach an agreement. And it sounds like Columbia is working toward an agreement. I hope that's the case mm-hmm. because this strike has completely upended, um, you know, the classes and, and uh, the instruction that um, folks have been providing for years. Um, and so and, and of course, um, the SAG-AFTRA strike um, I think so many of us, at least I'll talk to myself, didn't understand 
the smallest amount of money that was being made by mm-hmm. folks who were actually writers. So to be a writer, right, this whole idea that you have to make at least $26,000 uh, a year to qualify for health insurance, and many people weren't doing that. I mean, we learned, we all learned so much about the reality of what it takes to be in the business, if you will. Right, and I especially am disappointed in the AI future mm. for, I think, yeah. both the writers and the actors. I think they did the best they could, but that is only going to go down, downhill. It's really incredible how exploitive and extractive that industry and so many other industries have become. Absolutely. Um, What do you think about, just going back to politics for a moment, um, we need to keep in mind as we prepare for the Democratic National Convention. I've mentioned, uh, you know, that the convention is coming several times on this program because I want people to know, you know, there are many ways to be involved, right? You can be um, a volunteer. They need lots and lots of volunteers. Or you can be a delegate. And if you want to be a delegate, you have to get, you know, you have to get petitions. So you have to get signatures on petitions completed. Um, but it is absolutely within reach. And I'm just wondering if you've heard people start to talk about it. Are people excited about it, Salem? Um, we haven't really, we, we're, we're hearing a little bit more fear, um, from, <laughs> which is which is strange for our readership at the reader. But, um, you know, a, a little bit of fear and confusion about what um, the, the streets are going um, you know, and of course, what our, our current administration has planned, um, you know, it's, it's going to bring a tremendous amount of focus on our city and, and also, you know, um, all, all of our downtown areas. And it's during the summer where, you know, traditionally, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, that means that there's always this war on what teenagers are doing in general in, in the same area where uh, the convention is going to be, in the same area where a lot of the, the delegates are presumably going to be trying to enjoy um, our tourism. So I'm uh, a little bit worried about, you know, what uh, CPD and, and Johnson's administration might have in store um, for, um, you know, coordinating off areas, all of that kind of stuff but right. on the on the positive side you know it's a huge opportunity for our city to show the rest of the country you know how great chicago really is and um you know i'm 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 very concerned about what the dnc is going to be bringing to us in terms of of candidates and and i think a lot of other people in the city are concerned with that too so uh yes we've yet to see okay any any thoughts about that? Tracy? I'm absolutely terrified of the police ca- crackdown, the federal police uh, crackdown. Yes. Um, I saw I was in San Francisco recently for when the 20 uh, world leaders were there and um, saw how all everything was blocked off. So mm-hmm. I think it's mm-hmm. an un, it's an unfortunate situation. You know, we had the the we've had world events here where we've seen that kind of crackdown. I think they're actually working right now on preventative arrests and plans and mm-hmm. sabotage and bad actors and undercover people. Um I think at a level we all can't even understand or appreciate. So I'm really worried about my activist friends. Um, if we still have wars going on that are being picketed and protested. Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, I hope there's a tremendous amount of attention paid to free speech and the right to protest and that people are not literally cracked down on um, like we saw in 1968. Oh, no, we don't. We don't want a repeat of that. Nothing like it. So we're going to keep watching this and talking about it here because, um, I, I, as I said, I'm hoping people will get involved. But you know what, Salem? Let's end on a really happy, <laughs> positive note. Let's talk about the Northwestern uh, Prison Education Project. Yeah, this is a it's a tremendous project that Northwestern University has been um, sponsoring and, and putting input into for uh, about the last seven years. And, uh, you know, at some point in the state of Illinois, um, there, there were several um, college education projects in, in uh, various 
um, prison facilities. And uh, the funding for that, you know, kind of came in and left uh, during the 80s and 90s. But this is the first time that there's been, uh, you know, a Big Ten school involved. And uh, so there are students that have been at Statesville um, being a part of this program since 2018. Uh, In November this year, um, there were uh, several students that achieved their bachelor's degrees and were awarded a bachelor's degree from Northwestern University as part of the program. There was a there was a um, a, a an event uh, and uh, graduation ceremony held uh, at Statesville um, in Crest Hill um, just in November uh, with guests and speakers. And um, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, came out and did the keynote speech, so a, a, a tremendous thing. And now all of those graduates um, that are uh, still incarcerated are going to be. Um, hired as uh, teaching assistants for other um, other prisoners who are uh, still in the program trying to achieve their bachelor's degrees. Um, the the nice thing about this too is that it's not just limited to Statesville. There's currently 20 students at uh, Logan Correctional Center, which is um, a state facility for women, women. Mm-hmm. in Lincoln, mm-hmm, in Lincoln, Illinois. So 20 of those students are pursuing their degrees, and hopefully in the next few years we'll see them achieve that as well. So it's it's pretty incredible for our state to have college education in the prison system again. Um, and and I and I think it's it, it's just a, a great thing that I feel like has kind of gone under the wire um, for, for, for a lot of people. I absolutely agree with that. Um, I've had the really honor of doing work uh, at some uh, work with uh, women who've been formerly incarcerated and actually went mm-hmm. to Logan and to Dwight. And um, wow. folks really uh, want the information. They want to to um, do better, right? And so, particularly for women who have been separated from their children, um, there were just, I mean, just things that I saw that will remain with me forever and really um, make me understand why things like this program are really incredible and we need to do much more of it because as people are coming out of prison, particularly again with women, um, they're not finding the support that they need across the board at all, right? And so Mm -hmm. this is really good news and, and to your point, we need to lift it up. Yeah, I, I'm grateful for the Chicago Reader for running columns by current and former yes, prisoners. Yes, And uh, I know that one of the, Anthony Ellers, one of the graduates, right, is uh, one of the reader writers. Yes, that's right. He he just achieved his bachelor's degree last month. So we're really proud of, of Anthony. And it's been, it's been uh, a privilege to be able to work with someone who's, who's currently incarcerated and um, have him share his his very unique perspective with our readers. And, you know, I think that programs like this really speak to the heart of what we all, um, you know, need to think. And this is, uh, talking about prison issues is very hard because I think it, it reminds people of their own humanity. You know, no one wants to think of themselves as possibly being somebody who could be in that position. But the reality in today's America is that, uh, you know, it could the happen. great majority of people. That's right. right. And the great majority of people know someone who has. That, oh, absolutely. Time, That's right. You know, so, right. so this to me just points to like, hey, here's a program where we're talking about this is rehabilitation. This is this is what we are expecting people to do with that time to, you know, to learn more and achieve more. And I think this is great. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that good news story uh, to us. And we're going <laughs> to we're going to wrap there. Thank you so much, Salem. It's been great having you on. Um, looking forward to much more work um, from you and, and your leadership at The Reader. Um, 
you know, we're going to stay tuned and we're going to really encourage everyone to support the Chicago Reader. It is a nonprofit. So please keep that in mind. Uh, this is a great time <laughs> to make a gift to the Chicago Reader. Uh, you're getting lots of invaluable information from there, particularly around arts and culture and the politics of, of the city. So please support the Chicago Reader. And Salem, thanks so much for being with us today on Living Out Loud. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. ChicagoReader.com. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. You're listening to Living Out Loud. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment. People, this is Gina Yashua, comedian extraordinaire. And when I'm in Chicago, I like to hang out with my good friend Mary Morton on her fantastic show, Living Out Loud on WCPT. So listen. <laughs> no matter how many times I hear it, I laugh every time. And every time I will say, watch Bob uh, Hart's Abishola on Monday nights on CBS. That's Gina Yashua's show. Uh, that she uh, is in and is co-writer and showrunner and just doing an incredible job. And in case you haven't heard, um, this is their fifth and last season coming up. Uh, but it has been a wonderful run, and uh, I'm looking forward to this this final season. And actually, as I've said before, I'm just going to keep saying it. I really want to go out for the last um, uh, show and and be part of the live audience. So we'll see if that can that can happen. But you know, in this last segment, Tracy would love to just hear from you. Um, I know you've invested and worked on um, lots of um, really increasing support uh, for those who are unhoused and for people uh, in terms of looking at some real strategies around how we can have more housing, right? Because we need it. We don't have enough. And um, it's been really, um, we've just had to add on, right? Because of the migrant situation. We already had a situation here in Chicago where we needed to uh, spend a lot more time and attention and resources uh, on um, addressing those who are unhoused. 
right? Um, so Chicago is one of the few cities, I think, in this country, big cities, that can actually solve our housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Because we have the land, we have the transit and infrastructure. Uh, so just to compare, Detroit has the land, but their transit and infrastructure isn't there. Other cities may have um, you know, transit, but no land. So we have the combination needed here. We just need the will. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the Chicago Housing Authority, which is sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars, sitting on thousands of acres of land. And we have the medical district, which is sitting on land in great locations. Um, We have the land in transit-oriented areas. And we have um, the capabilities to build. We have incredible unions here. Right. We also have a labor force that is trainable. We have migrants as well as people coming out of prisons and people coming out of vocational schools, et cetera, that want to learn and be part of the trades. And so if we were to look at, um, for me, smaller footprint housing that's horizontal versus vertical, we already do small footprint housing in tiny little micro apartments um, that in some cases mimic prisons um, and or in other cases are luxury right. tiny micro apartments. Right. So what I'm talking about is basically... Uh, what I say, honey, I shrunk the house. Take a bungalow mm-hmm. and just take a little bit off of it. And we're talking about a full footprint house with uh, bathrooms, kitchen, um, ADA accessible, possibly environmentally net zero, and built at 20% of the cost of vertical housing. Why is that? It's because you do not have to do all of the other kinds of things with elevators and air conditioning units and hallways and all the other things that come with a large-scale vertical housing, which we do still need. I'm I was not, just going to say, we those need that homes too. still need... Heat and right. we air still, conditioning. And, what I mean is we still need vertical housing, too. I guess uh, what I'm saying okay. is add to the footprint. But when you look at a small footprint home, the ability to make it environmentally net zero, mm-hmm. the maintenance costs all around it are less, but the build costs are less. Okay. Right. And you can use it as training for building because you're not worried about the, the you know structure collapsing. Um, we can do this in neighborhoods that are near facilities. And for those who need high needs, you have services. For those, it's really just a rental or lease to own. If the CHA built 10,000 units of small fit footprint housing across the city and made them lease to own, we're talking about wealth development and communities of color. Right. And so the, then the money that those $500 a month rents or whatever it is goes towards building more. So public housing needs to be a part of this, right? But not the way that it used to be. I grew up right near Cabrini Green. That was housing. I'm sorry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to say. Um, and and it was sorry. It was horrible, right? It <laughs> like, was. Can we say that word? <laughs> I, um, so what I'm yeah. saying is, we need more dignity and beauty yes. in the kinds of housing choices. We need lease to own so that people have ownership. We also need rental. Um, for those folks who need it. And we need more senior housing. So we had a tiny home up in back of the yards for about a year Mm -hmm. that we had built as part of an international contest. And uh, Alpha Wood Foundation funded it. Um, American Institute of Architects uh, administered it. And it was an incredible amount of variety of homes that were were, uh, submitted. So the one that won, we built outside of Tiny Home Summit in 2014. We're going to do a new summit this June. But the one we built, we then moved to back of the yards for a year. Most of the people who came, we bust in from the viaducts and, and from youth senior youth and senior housing. They came in and looked at it, and it was universal love. It was th- about 350 square feet, brick outside, wood, uh, high ceilings, lots of light. Uh, you know what? One of the things people most noticed, they had their own mail slot. Ah, uh, that it, means something. It means it something. Means something. They Absolutely. They had a little plot of land yeah. where they could have some plants. Yes. They had mm-hmm. a full bathroom. They had a full kitchen. And this was 330 or so square feet. Um, and so... That's not for everybody. Right. We're exactly. Not it's for everybody. Right. Think of a dorm room that's independent living that could be for veterans, seniors, youth, you name it. And for those who don't want it, great. There's other kinds of housing we need to. That sounds like an incredible plan. I, I don't know that I understood you actually had folks who came in to check it out. Oh, yeah. Over what period of time were you able to have so the, sort of like an open house? Yeah, the city had us uh, have it up for a year. We could oh, allowed it. Okay. It didn't operate in terms of electricity and plumbing. So we were located in the back of the yards, and I would just sit out there on Saturdays, and anybody from the neighborhood could walk in, and they're like, when is this being built? Uh-huh. Right? They wanted it now. But then we also 
proactively. We brought the mayor in, Cook County Board President Tech Preckwinkle, Robin Kelly. We brought in lots of uh, elected officials. Um, and, and then also we brought in people who were experiencing homelessness. And we brought in bilingual. So we had, we had surveys. Um, the Resurrection House is who the plot of land we were on. So a lot of uh, Latino people came to see it. And I'm telling you, the saddest, because we originally were doing it for community youth, uh-huh. that the saddest were the seniors. The seniors mm-hmm. says, I want to live in the city. Mm-hmm. I want to yeah. live like I used to live right. on a plot of land that had right. uh, grass, right. but I can't afford it anymore. I have to, you know, I, I'm moving out of Chicago. Okay, so we, th- but this is a, a strategy that could work. Where Just tell us quickly, how, how is this going to move forward from your perspective? Well, the best model is in Dallas. Dallas has okay. 50 units of really supported housing. It was an $8 million uh, project built six years ago. They came and presented at our summit. So at the summit in June, we're going to bring Dallas back and Seattle and Portland and some other cities that are trying this. We're going to bring developers in, politicians, all sorts of people who have talked about it. And we think that with the Bring Chicago Home Initiative, which I'm super supportive of, if that yes. gets passed, yes. then we'll have resources to put into this. All right. And that will be on the ballot in the March primary. So keep your eyes open for Bring Chicago Home. Uh, Maria Had- uh, Haddon, uh, older person who was just here a few weeks ago, was talking about that. So we want to keep that uh, lifted up as well. OK, it's December 31st. Um, what are your intentions? Do you have an intention for uh, 24 that you can share with us? Well, my intention tonight is to get my email box to zero to start. Oh, well, wow. That's that's an incredible yeah, intention. I'm, I'm close. Uh, okay. Uh, so, but my intention in 24 is to be more deliberate with my yeses and yes. more generous mm-hmm. with my noes. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is something that I absolutely can get behind because I need to do the same. And, and I think what I've tried to start doing is saying no, which sounds odd, but often I can go back and say yes, right? Um, to say no, to think about it. To make sure I can do it, because what I'm trying um, uh, to not do anymore is what I is what happened before COVID, going to multiple events on one night. I'm just not, I'm not into that anymore. You know, I really want to have some quality, not necessarily the quantity, right, of of events and and places where you just have to be. And so I am going to join you on that intention. And um, here's two more um, yeses that we really want, right, that really are going to be meaningful to us. And to everyone who's listening, thank you so much for uh, joining me for these first several months of Living Out Loud. We're looking forward to uh, talking with you and to so many uh, interesting folks um, in 2024. We hope you will stay with us. Uh, Thanks again, Tracy, for being here. Very much enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Alex, for your help today and uh, wishing you all a wonderful uh, new year and looking forward to um, joining you again in in, uh, the next year. So until then, this has been Living Out Loud. I'm Mary Morton.